Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. This is Dan Lebitard doing it a little differently this week, not just talking to a random person from sports or outside of sports, but talking about somebody who is a bit of a vessel for a cause. Robert Dubois has been wrongly convicted. DNA evidence since the 80s has gotten much stronger, and he was wrongly convicted and on death row for a crime he did not commit Murder and rape DNA evidence bears that out. The Innocence Project, after 35 years wrongly convicted in prison, the Innocence Project got involved and rescued this man from a crime he didn't commit. So I wanted to talk to Robert Dubois about both the legislation that denies him $50,000 a year for every year that he spent wrongly convicted in prison which means he'd get nearly $2 million for at least, obviously, a systemic wrong. But because he committed a crime when he was 17 years old involving some car parts, he is stuck in the system now. He already got stuck in the system, not being able to get out on probation or get anyone to hear his cries for help while he was in prison for 35 years. But then the Innocence Project got involved, and they do a lot of good work like this. And if you want... To help along these grounds, you can do so by getting involved and helping legislation pass that can change some of the restrictive laws in Florida and in other parts of the country. You just text the word innocent to the number 52886, or you can visit innocenceproject.org. But here is the story of Robert Dubois. He was wrongly convicted of a crime of murder and rape, and DNA evidence exonerated him. This is his story. The Tampa Bay Bucks are involved in the story because they have helped him since he is not being paid. This is a piece of his story. Here's Robert Dubois. So, Robert, where is your level of bitterness? I imagine that anyone spending nearly four decades in prison without freedom for something they didn't do would have a great deal of trouble finding some sort of peace or tranquility in terms of quieting their anger about what had happened to them? No, I don't have bitterness. I'm not bitter about the whole thing. I just want to see change for everybody. You know, I would like to see the wrongful incarceration stop completely, of course. But in the meantime, I would at least like to see these people like myself be able to get on with our lives, you know? Well, how do you arrive at a place, though, where you're not carrying around an anger or a hostility or I've been wronged? Like, how how long did it take you to get there? Well, I guess it took me some years. I really wasn't bitter. I'm more more or less concentrated on just trying to prove my innocence. I didn't have time for bitterness and anger and all that stuff. You know, I hit a lot of roadblocks, of course. I had a lot of disappointments. You know, every time I tried to prove my innocence, get DNA testing, whatever, and I would run into roadblocks, I couldn't get it accomplished. So, you know, at times, you know, it seemed kind of futile and um, maybe hopeless even, but I just kept my faith and kept pushing forward. Take us back to when you're being wrongly accused and you realize that your innocence is not only in question, your innocence is now going to be legally lost. You are not innocent. You are someone who is guilty of this crime and you are losing your freedom. Yeah. When I sat in the trial, I mean, you could see through the old videos, I would sit there and I was pretty well dumbfounded. I mean, I didn't understand how it could be happening. 
And yet it did, you know? I sat there every day, slowly being convicted of something I didn't do. So I had to listen to all this nonsense from them in the courtroom, you know, accusing me of murder and sexual battery. And I knew I didn't do it, but now the whole country thought I did because of what happened. And so what do you remember about your first day with Freedom Lost? You're in prison and you're thinking to yourself, how the hell does this happen to me and how do I fix this? Yeah, that's pretty much the case. And, you know, at that point, you know, people say they would kick and scream and do all this other stuff. Guess what? You're locked in a cell now. All that kicking and screaming ain't going to help you at all. So the only thing you can do at this point is try to focus on trying to prove your innocence which I did my best to do. I I mean, I offered polygraph tests. I wanted to do DNA testing. I never asked for a loophole in the law. I just asked them to test the evidence so I could prove my innocence. To what lengths did you go to? Can you explain to us? Because I can imagine in this situation, Robert, uh, this would be something that would lead someone to literally go mad go crazy. Like they don't know what is real or what is the truth anymore when this happens to them. Yeah. Like I said, it it did feel hopeless, you know, for a long time, especially when I first went on death row. So after a short while, you know, I just had to start concentrating on doing whatever I could to prove my innocence. So I would see these uh, shows like 2020, 60 minutes, 48 hours, and stuff like this on death row. And I would say, you know, maybe they could help. So I wrote many, many letters to all kind of news outlets and other people that might be interested in helping. And I never even got a response. Never to nothing? No, not no. A, not a letter you wrote. So how many letters are you writing? You're Because you have a lot of time, correct? Can you explain to yeah. us what the death row, well, explain to us the death row existence? So it's like, the only thing I did every day was I would write letters, like 28 page letters sometimes, you know, and try to get 48 hours, 60 minutes, 20, 20, anybody interested in putting my story out there. And not one of them responded or said they couldn't help or nothing. They just never responded. So I pretty much spent my days like, um, either trying to exercise to keep my mind focused or writing letters to my family and friends and like doing a little bit of artwork or something, just anything to keep my mind occupied. Any interaction with others? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, everybody on death row is locked in their own cell, but at times up to 22, 23 people at the same time can actually go outside into a small caged area twice a week. Other than that, you only come out of your cell three times a week for a five minute shower. That's it. So is there a way for you to describe the loneliness of nearly four decades spent within that kind of space? Man, that is something I don't think words could adequately describe. I mean, you know, it's like a, a feeling of complete despair at times, you know, It's like you're sitting there 24 hours a day. You know you didn't do it. You know, you're around other people that may or may not have done what they're accused of. I don't know. But, you know, you're just stuck. And it's like I said, it's it's a feeling of despair. 
Do you remember when you were most hopeful? Because that's a long time. How many How many years was it just on death row? On death row, it was three plus, a little over three, maybe. There was a couple times I, it seemed hopeful. Like when I went back for an evidentiary hearing, I thought I was actually going to get DNA testing done. But instead, I ran into another roadblock. So the only time that I was ever truly hopeful was the day I got a letter from Susan Friedman. Okay, that's the Innocence Project, correct? Yes. All right, we'll get back to that in just a second. But before we get to the Innocence Project, I sort of want to wander through some of this space with you on before you get to 2019, you are spending nearly four decades wrongly convicted of a crime you know you did not commit. And from within that, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to get out some point. How? Yeah, I'm just trying to stay focused on proving my innocence any way I can. I volunteered for True Serum, even though they said it would be dangerous. But of course, they wouldn't give it to me. Um, I offered polygraph tests. I offered any tests they wanted to do. You know, so basically... My existence after coming off death row, ironically enough, I came straight from death row to being the prison electrician. So from that point on, all my days was pretty much consumed with doing maintenance in the prison and just trying to write letters and do whatever I could to to prove my innocence. I didn't even have access to telephones or anything. So what happened with the Innocence Project? How did they come into your life? Well, I wrote to them. First, I wrote to the one in Florida, and they were working on the case for quite a while. And unfortunately, they didn't have the resources that it took to to really delve into this. So they sent my files over to New York, and then New York got involved. So... I really became hopeful, like I said, when I got a letter from Susan Friedman, because she found she sounded like she was really she had a positive attitude about the whole thing. She says, we read your case and we're accepting it, you know, so pretty much sign these documents because we're going to be representing you. And why did she say she was doing that? Because they they've read my transcripts and they believe I'm innocent. And you'd been sending those over nonstop, right? Over many, many years, you for over decades, yes. you've been sending that and never gotten any other response other than that one in 2018 or 2019? Um, 2019. I think it might have been 18. I'm not really sure about dates. Is there anything that is more frustrating through this, uh, Robert, beyond obviously being wrongly convicted of something? than running up against the imperfections in a legal system that almost made it easier to keep you imprisoned wrongly yeah. than to get you out rightly. Because yeah. that, that when, when we talk to Maya Moore around here on a South Beach Sessions and she's trying to change, you know, doing as you are, trying to do substantive criminal reform, I can't imagine the exasperation in there seemed to be no effort by the system whatsoever to drag out the innocent because it was just easier to keep you guilty. Exactly. You know, and and like I say, a lot of people become bitter inside, but 
you know, they become hateful towards the correctional officers and the prison system. Well, they're not the ones that did it. The state did it. The state convicted you. So their job is to keep you in prison once you get there. After all these years went by, my goal at 25 years, I was sentenced to 25 years mandatory life sentence. So which means that you have to do a minimum of 25 years before you can see the parole board. Well, I've seen the parole board three times and they were very negative every time. So at this point I was thinking, even if I can get parole, then I can go out and prove my own innocence. But even that didn't happen. That was another roadblock. After my last parole hearing, actually the last parole hearing I had was the day before I received Susan's letter. You know, so I just said, God, I put it in your hands because I mean, I just couldn't do nothing with them. You, you can't talk to them. They don't want to hear it. They don't look at um, the kind of person you are. They don't look at what you've done while you were in prison. I've been working maintenance all these years in prison. So not stabbing nobody or doing nothing stupid in there like a lot of people. So the parole commission never looked at that once. So there went my hope of trying to get parole just so I could go prove my innocence. Why do you imagine the parole experiences were so negative? I don't know. This one, the last lady that came, the, the guy before her, he was really nasty. But the last lady that came, she says, okay, tell me a little bit about the crime. So I said, well, I said, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for remorse. I said, but I can't sit here and tell you that I'm remorseful for something I didn't do. So she slapped the desk. She said, this meeting's over with. I'll see you later. I said, well, have a nice day and drive careful. And then the following day, I got a letter from Susan. Did you consider faking remorse? No. No, I told her, I said, I said I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm remorseful for something I didn't do. I said, am I sorry for the victim's family? I said, yes. And I'm sorry for my family and myself as well. I said, but I didn't do it. So she just abruptly ended the meeting and that was it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So that was one of three hearings that you got, and those are going to be the most hopeful moments that you have, right? You are right. you are preparing to be able to tell your story the most meticulously because you might not, well, hell, you haven't gotten audiences with anybody for two and a half decades. So exactly. you're trying to you're trying to present your best case, and that third one was over in how long? Oh, it was over in less than five minutes. Oof. I mean, how do you not consider harming yourself? How do you not get so hopeless that you are thinking of ending your life? No, I mean, it felt pretty hopeless many, many times, but I had to consider my family too. And so that's what you kept... Know, that's another thing. I, I've, I've actually seen people lose their mind in there, and even on death row. I've seen people lose their mind. I've seen people come in with all black hair in less than a year. They had a full head of gray hair. You know, just constant worry. 
And I've seen what this bitterness and stuff can do to you. I just don't understand how you were able to navigate that. There is profound wisdom in you being able to stay alive during a bitterness and a resentment that would have been poison in a lot of other, in a lot of other bodies. Yeah, I just had to stay focused, like I said, to try to prove my innocence. That's really all I wanted. Can you explain to us what the Innocence Project did, how they did it for you? Well, I, I can't really say how they did it. I mean, you'd have to talk to Susan. She's very, very meticulous in everything she does. But I know that she explained everything to me as we went. We had many, many phone calls. She even came to visit me from New York. So she just let me know. She would show me the documentation that she put together. And slowly, as the case moved forward, she finally said, you know, that we're going to push for DNA testing. She said, they already know I didn't do it. They can tell by all the records they've already read. But the DNA, thank God, really sealed the whole bargain, you know. How would you articulate your gratitude for the work that Susan did? Oh, man, I'm, I'm very thankful to them, and I'm going to do everything I can to support and help bring support to them because I'm not the only one they've helped, and I'm not the only one they're going to help. They're still doing it even as we speak. She's working on cases right now. One of the things they're working on, the current law restricts most wrongfully convicted people from being compensated, but there is a bill in the state legislature that could fix that law in this session, if you want to get involved or help legislation like that pass in Florida and in other parts of the country, you text INNOCENT to 52886, or you can visit the innocenceproject.org. But if you just want to type, it's the easiest way possible you can help if you're moved by this story and you simply want to correct some wrongs. 52886, text INNOCENT to 52886. Help us with the exit from prison. When you leave prison, the day that you're leaving prison, you are filled with what? Oh, I was filled with complete joy. I mean, just to finally be at this point where everybody knows I'm innocent. You know, you don't, you don't know all the looks you get over the years, you know, and when someone talks to you, whether it be a staff member, officer, whatever, and they look at you because they see on paper that you're a murderer and rapist. So that automatically makes you pretty much an animal to everybody. So when they see you and you say you're innocent, they say, yeah, everybody says that. I said, yeah, I said, everybody might say it, but everybody ain't telling you the truth. I said, I am innocent. So many people in there that knows me will tell you exactly those words because I've always told them that I'm innocent. I said, I know you're not going to believe it and I don't really expect you to. I said, because you're used to looking at black and white and what you see in writing is what you believe. So I said, you know, sooner or later, I said, hopefully I'll be able to prove this. So now they all see that I was telling the truth and some of them have even reached out. You know, and they said, you always said you were innocent, you know, so. How many of them have reached out? Oh, many, like at least like 15 or so. And that's all like employees from different prisons. What is the most gratifying thing that you have felt since leaving prison? 
Oh man, I think like when the the Buccaneers reached out, I had a Zoom meeting with them, and that was really shocking to me. I didn't know that we were going to have it. So when they reached out to me, I, I just you know I was kind of overwhelmed by the uh, the caring, you know. But between the Buccaneers and the Innocence Project, you know, they've kept me afloat. You know, I, I mean, I've, I have to work. You know, because I come out, you, you know, you're not eligible for compensation at this time. So um, they're they're fighting for it. But, you know, in the meantime, I have to work and I have to make a living, you know. So each one of them have helped me get on my feet enough to do this. You know, but without them, I would have had nothing. Well, let's walk through this because this is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you in terms of fixing some of this legislation and actually helping people who have been so clearly wronged. Florida is one of 35 states that does have a compensation law, but it is one of the most restrictive laws in the country. And so there have been 31 people like Robert who have been innocent and been freed, but only five of those have been paid. So why are you not eligible? But they're saying because of a past offense, they have what they call a clean hands bill. So for some dumb stuff I did, nonviolent stuff, by the way, when I was 17 and I got probation for, I'm still being punished for it. And what was that dumb stuff? Well, they're saying it's like car parts. You know, so now they're they're saying I'm ineligible. They're not going to... Um, the state is not going to admit the wrong and try to compensate me after all these years because of this. Because there were some car parts you stole when you were 17 or some crime? Yeah, that's what they're, that's what they're saying, yeah. Okay, and so how did the Bucks help you? Explain to me. They get on a Zoom call, and who's on there, and why are they taking up your cause? Is is it? It's not just merely because you've been convicted when you're innocent. It's because of the unfairness of you want to work, you've been wronged, and you're not being allowed to you, – you can't be compensated. You're having trouble finding work. Right. So the Buccaneers got involved, and they said, you know, Ali Marpet – Donovan Smith and Alice Kappa, Sarah Evans, and a couple of other people. So we had a Zoom meeting and the Buccaneers, Ali Marpet led the way. He says that we was reading your story and we're really touched by this. And um, we want to give you some money to try to help you get on your feet a little bit, you know, at least help you. And so they gave me some money and they invited me to the Buccaneers game. And then later even invited me to the Super Bowl, you know. So it must have felt good to have someone just trying to help you. I don't know if you're a football fan or if you're a Buccaneer fan, but just. Yeah, it's like, like I said, well, I didn't get to watch football all these years. I mean, some people in prison do, but um, I was one of the ones that did a lot of work. So I worked every day doing maintenance and stuff. So I really never got a chance to watch a game. I never went to a game in my whole life. So when I went to the Buccaneer Rams game, that's the very first game I've ever been to. So then the Super Bowl, they invited me to the Super Bowl. And I was just, you know, I was just happy that they were in the Super Bowl to begin with and making history by being in their own city while they're playing in a Super Bowl, you know. I was just elated for them. And then they invited me to the Super Bowl, which I did not expect. 
I've got to imagine, Robert, that the work is what kept you sane or helped keep you sane. The fact that you were doing physical work that could allow your mind to be occupied on doing work. Was that taken away with death row? Did you go three years without being able to work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went straight from death row to being a prison electrician. But on death row, you're locked in the cell 24 hours a day. So that was you the worst. What? That was the worst of it, correct? It, it yes. didn't. It didn't get any worse than there. It felt a little more like freedom outside of those three years, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, at least you could move around, you know. I mean, I was in the most dangerous prison in the whole state. But the only reason I was in the whole the dangerous prison was the fact that back in the in the eighties, if you came off of death row, the only place you could go was FSP which is the worst prison in the whole state. That's where they send everybody that uh, stabs other inmates at other prisons or whatever, or assault staff. So anyway, you had a pretty rowdy prison. I've always gotten along good with everybody, but you know, you were, you're in a dangerous situation. You got guys going around stabbing each other every day, you know? So I focused on doing electrical work, plumbing work or whatever, and just kept my mind occupied. How did you navigate the most dangerous prison, though? How did you navigate all of the nonsense that can happen there? Well, you know, I was really blessed in that respect because, I mean, like I said, I'm in a dangerous situation. A lot of guys got killed and stabbed. And uh, me, I just went to work every morning. I would get my tools. I would go into the wings with all these guys. And pretty much I was the guy that fixed all their stuff, you know? So everybody got to know me pretty quick and, you know, I had a good relationship with most. You made yourself useful. That's the best way to do it, right? You're, yeah. you're, you are. And so how helpful were you in that regard? How, how good were you with mechanics? Oh, no, I always, I always did the job. I always fixed lights, uh, plumbing, air conditioning, all of this. Plus it's not just that. It's a matter of how you carry yourself and how you treat others as well. You know, it doesn't matter that we're in prison. You still have to treat each other with respect. You know, that's the key issue. What difficulties have there been in transitioning into freedom? Oh, man, it's like going in. I don't I'm not sure you could even imagine this, but it's like going into um, pretty much a whole nother country that you're not familiar with at all. Because I came out before I went in, there was no, there were no cell phones and computers. So I've never used a cell phone until I came out. So um, self-checkout in stores, I didn't know nothing about it. The stores are bigger than they used to be. There's more products. Um, all the streets have changed. The whole city's changed. And it's really been difficult to navigate a lot of this stuff and without the help I've had through the Innocence Project and Sunny Center and the Buccaneers, you know, I, I would have had a lot of issues. Can you tell us some more of the things you get out and what's different? I mean, you mentioned several of them there, but I imagine something every day is different where you're you're basically coming out of 1980, right? You're coming out. Exactly. In, you're, you, it's like you left Miami in 1980. Miami was an entirely different city in 1980. Yeah, it's basically like I went forward in a time machine. Give me some of the details on that, what you're talking about, things that represent culture shock. 
computers, well, just things that you run into where you're like, this is not something that I was prepared for in prison. Yeah, the computers, the telephones, even the TV. I got a, I have a Roku TV, and that was hard to navigate um, because before you had the little channels, UHF and VHF. So um, um, just seeing things like when I'm driving down the street, I think the first thing that caught my attention basically when my attorney and I were driving was the amount of homeless people I've seen. So that really disturbed me. So then uh, she took me into my first store the night I got out. So then I learned about self-checkout, which took a while. And um, I had to learn to, to kind of navigate the stores again, you know, to find different items. And at times it was very overwhelming. I mean, I didn't even stay in a store for 10 minutes because I would just be overwhelmed, you know, kind of just so much to take in at one time. I would think that you would have some post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't know what your sleep is like. I don't know how restful uh, your nights are, but there is some really hard stuff you've endured. I don't know where you put it. I don't know how it is not something that's soaked into every part of your being. Well, I don't sleep much, but I didn't really put it to that, but maybe that is an issue. But yeah, I usually sleep like maybe three hours. I mean, you have to be carrying a great deal of stress, Robert. I don't know how much of this stuff uh, is too painful to navigate. I do imagine you've put a, a lot of coping mechanisms in because survival is the greatest instinct. But what you have endured is beyond unspeakably horrific. Anyone listening to this can't possibly understand what your hell has been because you have been alive for 35 years and you've had something on you that uh, none of us can ever understand. It's, it's the worst nightmare. Yeah, it is that. In fact, many years I kept waking up hoping I would find out it was just a bad dream. Does that still happen to you? Like with, with this freedom, can you believe that you can now just go outside? Like what are some of the simple pleasures that you are able to experience that many of us probably don't appreciate every day? Yeah, that, that kind of, for the first few nights or the first weeks at least, I used to get up like even two in the morning and just go outside, you know, just to be able to go outside and look up at the moon and just the sky and have some peace of mind, you know. So I think the that kind of going to the beach or even going down like Bayshore Boulevard, seeing the waterfront, all of those things are relaxing to me. And I know some people come out in the morning, um, they're in a rush to get to work or to the store or whatever, and they never take the time to look at the sunrise or the sunset or the sky or whatever. And, you know, these are things I don't take for granted. Is there anything you miss about prison because you just got so used to that life? No, no, no. I never got used to it. The reason I asked that question, it may be a dumb one, is because I remember Mike Tyson saying that sometimes he felt he didn't want to leave prison on his last day in prison because it felt safer in some ways than everything that was waiting for him out there. And so I don't know when you walk into that store and feel overwhelmed if life has, uh, you know, any of those Shawshank Redemption qualities where it's so hard on the outside and you get so used to what it's like on the inside or you're saying you don't get used to it, but that the life becomes so familiar to you that you just don't know any other way when you get to freedom. 
Yeah, that's pretty much true. I mean, it's human nature to adapt to whatever situation they put you're put in, you know. I never miss prison at all. I do um, understand that there's people in there that need help. You know, even the, some of the guilty ones, you know, there's some people that need help just to be able to be treated more more respectful or with more dignity without being judged. I mean, most of the guys that are sent to prison are already judged by a court. And then they get in there and you have these officers who feel like they're going to keep judging them forever, you know? So, Robert, if you hadn't at 17 taken some car parts, what kind of money would you be entitled to right now? Well, it would be $50,000 for every year. So $50,000 times 37, correct? 37 years. Right. Um, and you're not entitled to any of that money now because of that? No, but thank God they're, they are filing a bill in my behalf for a, a compensation bill. So they're working on that now. So if you'd like to get involved or help legislation like that pass in Florida and in other parts of the country, all you have to do right now, you just go to your phone, text 52886, text the word innocent, or you could go to the innocenceproject.org. Robert, thank you for the time. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I hope that this works out for you in a way that offers some peace because this sounds like a special kind of hell you've had to live through. Thank you very much. If that particular nightmare spoke to you, you can help in the easiest of ways. Just text the word INNOCENT to 52886 if that's something that bare minimum you want to help with so that maybe somewhere down the line someone does not get wronged like that. A reminder that while we are the pirate ship, we continue to need your support in every way. Rate, subscribe, and review for all of the Lebitard and Friends properties. You've got Mystery Crate. You've got South Beach Sessions. You've got Stupidity. You've got the Lebitard Show with Stugatz. And you've got the Lebitard Network, the podcast feed. Take care of us there. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank <laughs> you.